21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. What inspired you to pursue a career in experience design and event production? I really wasn't inspired to do it. I was I was performing as a classical violinist and a jazz vocalist, and I was being asked to be to perform at more events than I could physically be at. So I couldn't turn down the money or the work, and I did have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I brought in other groups that were as good as I were, potentially better, and managed them. And so I unofficially started an entertainment production company at a very young age. And in 2001, I started the official uh, with a business license and paying taxes properly, entire productions, which really started out sending out artists, musicians, talent to um, events. And then ultimately over the last 20 years, we grew into an experience design and event production company as well. 30 million dollar one by the way yes so how do you get uh, on the inc 5000 list uh, on the first place so the inc magazine 5000 list is um, a list of people that have self-selected to enter right so there could be a huge amount of companies that don't enter but for those that they do then they take the averages of the growth and you have to be at the two million dollar mark when you enter Uh to start so um then they crunch all the numbers and then you find yourself either on the list somewhere or not on the list and the year that we were on the first year i applied we showed a 65 percent growth And then the second year, again, 65%. And the third year, about the same. So, of course, we didn't, we weren't on the list for the year 2020 because that was the pandemic. And my profitable multi-million dollar company went to zero. Mm -hmm. But we had to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. And we we rebuilt it by doing really cool, faster-paced, shorter-segmented entertainment um, and interactivity with keynote and, and messaging and such uh, for our corporate clients. We did virtual events. Mm-hmm. And so we produced over 200 virtual events that first year of the pandemic. Maybe it's too big question, but when you say rebuild, what was the process like on, on a project management level, on, on your personal transformation level, your team level? We were used to doing in-person events, over the top, really, you know, highly attended, you know, anywhere from 100 to 6,000 people for Google and Salesforce and LinkedIn and Adobe, things like that. And so we couldn't do in-person anymore. We couldn't do catering. We couldn't do decor. We couldn't do lighting and sound. We had to figure out how to fit all of this into a virtual Um, landscape. So there was a learning curve of the digital aspect. Mm -hmm. We're very technically progressive, so it wasn't that hard for us. Mm -hmm. But then we had to find platforms that were conducive and affordable to the various clients. And so we've worked on so many different platforms. And of course, the metaverse and, you know, Web3 is starting to come up 
And we wanted to give our clients the option of that more sophisticated technology. So it was a huge learning curve that was really fast. It had to be fast. We had to ramp up to get ahead of our clients so that we could educate them on what was possible for them during this really hard time. Beside technology, what do you think uh, sets uh, your company apart from other companies in the industry? We didn't think after a week of having the panic that we weren't going to figure out a way to stay afloat. And we added a new division that brought in income. We brought in maybe $120,000 in the first 30 days of this new division, which was selling to our clients, our existing clients, promotional items for their events to send out. So branded swag or high-end gifting. So we got a resale license. And again, we're not selling these things to the greater public, just to our event production clients. And almost every event, our clients need to, you know, purchase a bunch of stuff with their name on it or their logo on it. So we had to be innovative. We had to create new lines of income, new revenue streams. And we built a whole new division with virtual online events that we didn't have before. So ultimately, when things come back to full production in person, we could double our revenue possibly in the future, right? Because virtual events are going to stay because they're, they're able to reach so many more people at a less cost. On Christmas Day, when I was 16 years old, and this is in the mid-1980s, in the middle of America, in Des Moines, Iowa, um, my mother, uh, this was not unusual for her to be upset with me or, or being emotionally, verbally, or physically abusive to me, but she just lost it and um, was chasing me around the house with a butcher knife saying that she was going to kill me. Again, the threats had been happening my entire life. I was told almost every day how much she hated me and, and wished that I wasn't around. But that day I realized there was a different tone in her voice or a different look in her eye. And I did not feel safe. So I finally called um, in America, 911 is our emergency to bring the police to your location. And they came and they weren't able to remove me from my home and they didn't do anything to my mother. Because in that time, in that place in America, unless I was gushing with blood or had a broken bone, there was no law to protect me. But the police gave my dad a card that said, um, Youth Emergency Shelter Service. It was a homeless shelter for children. And said, if you feel she's in danger, you can take her here. 
So my dad told me to pack a bag. I didn't have a bag because we didn't go on vacations and I didn't go on overnights. And if I did, it was next door and I wouldn't take anything. So I ended up packing a black hefty garbage sack with some clothes and a book and, you know, some random things. I didn't know what to take. And I had, you know, I lived in this homeless shelter. Um, I was being told that I might have to go to foster care. And then I finally read a book in the shelter that was directed to me by one of the counselors and realized that I was in the eyes of the court system, what they called an abandoned youth and not a runaway. So I wasn't really being held there by the, by the courts. I wasn't sort of jailed and that I could be an emancipated adult, but in Iowa, there wasn't an emancipation law. Uh, so I was unofficially emancipated. So it was very gray area. And I'm, I'm in high school, right? And then I have to go live on my own for the rest of my life. So for most of us that will be abandoned once when both of our parents will die in our early 50s or whatever, how is it to feel, to vibe, to, to immerse into that abyss of, of abandoncy? Yes. I mean, it's, listen, being told your entire life by the one person that's supposed to support and protect you that they hate you um, does something to your soul, right? So I was already abandoned emotionally. And even though my dad loved me dearly and was such a good dad in every other way, I was abandoned by him too. So I already was used to that feeling. What I then engaged in was the lack of um, a physical structure support, right? And being fed and clothed. So th those were new things that I had to figure out on my own. And when you're in the middle of that, you don't really have time to grieve and feel sorry for yourself. It's now um, survival. And some new level of consciousness, maybe. It isn't, it's a maybe new some way. of us did not have that that level of consciousness when we were 16 years old. Right. Oh no, there's no no, and I wouldn't wish it on people. It's mm -hmm. it's not a good place to be. Now, 16, you know, it's not being a baby. Right. Yeah, but, sure, but still, if you're still. under somebody else's roof and you're yeah. used to being cared for to be and you were, haven't been taught to care for yourself, mm -hmm. then it's a it's a big learning curve. What are the lessons? I wanted someone to see me and recognize me and see me that I was worthy enough to save. I wanted someone to come into my home and take me away 
take me into their home and save me. But nobody did that and nobody is going to do that. Um, there will be people along the way that help you in little spots, bursts, like just little, and you have to take that. And what I did was I think I amplified all of those things to its fullest potential and counted on myself. So I guess the lesson is no one's coming to save you, Mm -hmm. but it's very likely that you can save yourself, Mm -hmm. but you still need the help of other people. about personality traits are there any specific personality traits that you think helped you back then and maybe through your life in general i mean at the personality trait i had i had a talent you know for music and, and which was also a passion and so my belief that my talent and my passion could potentially turn into something that would help save me was great. If I didn't have that, I probably would have turned to self-soothing things like drugs or alcohol or, you know, being with people that were unhealthy for me. And, you know, I did make choices about people that were not so healthy for me. But as far as personality, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, seriously, the personality trait that that has gotten me through life and that has gotten me here talking to you is being relentless, right? And I like to say it's not enough to be resilient. And resiliency is you're here at this benchmark that is, you know, every day you're you're thriving and you have ups and downs, but pretty much you're okay. Then if you drop down because of things like being abandoned, or being in a war and tour country or having to fend for yourself. If you're resilient, that means you can bounce back up to where you were before. But to get further, to get from where you were to where you wanna go, it takes relentlessness. You have to have laser focus. You have to have the blinders on and go straight for your goal and not be torn by Oh, that looks fun. That looks more fun than working. Or, you know, this this drink is going to soothe my soul and, and wipe out all my feelings. So instead of paying attention to those things, just having being diligent and disciplined is the way out and, and being relentless. How did you come to that uh, conclusions by by God's uh, trial and er- error? Or... Yes. So you hear about the word resiliency, resilient, a lot. People talk about that a lot, uh, especially in America. But you know, again, that's going from here, falling for some reason, and then getting back to where you were. And maybe where you were is just fine. Maybe. You don't need changes or growth, or uh, you don't. You're not driven to go to a success. And you know what? That is okay. But in order to grow or scale and grow your company or heal the wounds and get from where you were to where you really want to go, you have to be unstoppable because there's going to be a million things that are going to get in your way. And so I think it's only recently 
when people have said to me, they've reflected back to me, Natasha, I really admire your relentless tenacity. To me, that's a compliment. Now to others, they could say, oh, she's relentless, which is negative, right? It's, Mm -hmm. she just doesn't stop. She's annoying me. She's really, you know, something negative. Mm -hmm. And maybe I do come off that way to some or certain people or groups. Um, And I don't care because my heart is in the right place. I'm not out to or trying to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And getting from where I want to go from where I was to where I wanted to go would help me, but it would only help other people as well. My daily routine is different from all the famous and fabulous entrepreneurs that say they get up at 5 a.m. and they meditate and they don't look at their phone. I look at my phone right away. I wake up at 7 a.m., And I look at my phone right away and I lay in bed and I scroll for a while and it makes me happy. I'm a successful person and I don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. and meditate and then go work out, right? I mean, that's the current vibe that everyone's proposing. And it's fine if you do that, totally fine. You can also do other things and still, you know, be productive. I would say the number one thing that keeps me going is, you know, people talk about writing down what they're grateful for. I don't do that. However, throughout the day, all through the day, at various points, um, sometimes just in my mind, I'm so thankful for the little things and the big things and the in-between things that I have and that I can enjoy. And I celebrate internally mostly the little wins, right? The little pins that you put on the map from where you started with an idea to where you want to go. Even if the road is spaghetti to get there, right? So I am so thankful. And again, I don't do what everyone says to do. Write it down in a journal, you know, put it in a journal jar or, you know, different things like that. I just don't, I just do it differently and it's okay. Being a classically trained violinist and a jazz vocalist did help me incredibly with my entrepreneurial pursuit. And not all artists or not all musicians will find that because that creative side of the brain, if you have so much of it and you don't develop the other side, the analytical, the logistical, the business side, then you're going to be this beautiful musician in your bedroom, there are phenomenal artists in the world that we will never hear about because they can't promote themselves. Um, They either don't have the skill or they don't have the confidence to show their art, to show their goodness to the world. And for for some reason, and we can guess why, probably out of necessity, I developed that side of the brain to counterbalance the creative side So I had to monetize anything I was good at, right? I couldn't just have something as a hobby. When you are so young and you live on your own, you know, I would have been a waitress for the rest of my life. And again, actually waitressing taught me a whole lot about business, actually hostessing and 
having to look at a map of the restaurant, see the one hour wait of people, look at the list of people that are on the on the waiting list and slot them in at the right time so that the, the wait list doesn't leave and go somewhere else, right? That was an incredible learning, you know, um, path to logistics, right? And systems and processes. I didn't know it then. There's no way I would there's no way I would have been able to recognize that. Same with performing. I had to figure out how to brand myself. I had to learn how to market and advertise myself, which is completely different than branding. Then I had to learn how to sell. And most of the sales I were making were inbound, right? They were calling me. Can you perform for my wedding? Can you sing for my graduation? Yes, that's an inbound call, but you have to close the deal, right? Then you have to learn how to price yourself and you have to figure out how your pricing is in the market. So you have to do market research. That's an incredible education. And you can apply that to anything. Say that you're mowing people's lawns or you're painting someone's bedroom. It's the same thing. You have to learn these things. And I think artists sometimes say, well, I can't do that. I'm an artist. My brain, like it's, you know, okay. So maybe you can't develop or you don't want to develop that side of your brain. What do you do, Martin? You go find somebody who can do it for you. And at the beginning, you know, when you're young or you're just starting out, you don't even have to be young. You can find people that are also just rising and have them work with you. Um, they don't, you know, you don't have to have so much money to pay these highly educated and highly successful people. So you can help each other up the rungs of the ladder. Beautiful. Yeah, you can see I've got a lot of energy for that idea. My vision as a musician was to, um, when I was younger, I wanted to get to be the concert master of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Once I became concert master of the orchestra, the next vision that was expected of me was to be a concert solo violinist in front of, you know, many, many people playing solo, you know, Brooke or Mendelssohn concerto with a whole orchestra. And I, I did and didn't want to do that. It was kind of a mixed bag. My heart actually really wanted to be singing. So my next vision was like, okay, I'm going to use the violin and use my string quartet to pay money and give me authority that will build into my singing career. Then I'm going to start singing. And so then there was a new vision that was put in. And that new vision was that I would be performing on stages all over the world in front of a band, in front of a big audience, recording lots of CDs. And I just looked up on my wall. There are seven framed CDs on my wall of my work. And my vision was to kind of be on the road and performing at venues all over the world. But the problem is for me, I didn't realize this. First of all, I had a young child when I was 24. So you can't really go on tour with a baby. Second of all, I don't really love traveling and I don't do well on the road. And 
I'm very outgoing and I can, and I can be very dramatic and, and entertaining on stage, but I'm pretty introverted. So I need to spend a lot of time alone. So what happened with that vision is that when I got these seven CDs and I did the performing, I did, I felt satisfied before I I made it to those huge stages and I didn't need it anymore. But let me tell you what happened then was, you know, I was performing and I had created entire productions, entire productions. My core business was a lifestyle business supporting Mm -hmm. my performing career. And I just swapped them out. Mm -hmm. So I started to really focus on entire productions, left my performance career to the wayside because it wasn't fulfilling me anymore. So I didn't have to rely on just that. And I really focused on, on entire productions and millions of dollars of revenue. Later, my vision changed right? I wanted to get to, at some point, a million dollars in revenue got there. Then I wanted to go to three. Then I wanted to go to five. So the vision, you, you keep layering onto it, but you can also set it aside, right? If, if you haven't gotten all the way to that apex of the vision because you don't want to anymore, it's okay to, to switch. Uh. There's no fail. I don't feel like I failed in any sense of the word. In 2009, I took an online course through the Berkeley School of Music, and that was pretty early to be doing online courses. And the Berkeley School of Music is a very highly sought after music school in America. So I was so pleased to be able to do this, but I had to choose. Do I focus on my record label that I had created called Poignant Records or entire productions? Because I realized even though I had lots of energy and gusto, I couldn't take this course and focus on two separate businesses. And I chose entire productions. And that was a pivotal moment because I realized then while doing this course and looking at a business plan, how much money and success I could create for myself. And that excited me just as much, if not more than singing on stages and recording, um, you know, CDs and it fit my personality and my lifestyle more. Mm -hmm. So even though I do like to perform and I do like to be on stage, I don't want that 250 days out of the year. I kind of like, and maybe prefer, and maybe even thrive and are better at being behind the scenes, creating the magic that other artists and other musicians do. So it was an evolution. And I think it's important for people to understand it's okay to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I, I also, I want to stress that even though I am a very positive person, even today, I get down, I feel negative. I feel like I've hit a brick wall. I don't like myself. I don't like my business, <laughs> but this is what I know now. I'm 51 years old. 
to let, just to pause and let those feelings come through me, feel sad and feel down, but know that if I pay attention to them, maybe address them, then rest that I will feel differently the next day. I don't know if I knew that when I was younger. I experienced you as, as you had different circles of different authenticities, like, like you had different meta levels of authenticity. So you, you were authentic on one way when you were 16. And then even when you were waitress, that was some, some specific authenticity. And you, you, you took all kinds of experiences from every level of your authenticity. So it's not just if I understood you well, running for one, being one authentic being on this earth when when I will be 50. But I can right, be right. authentic in here and now, probably. Yep, absolutely. I, I love that freedom. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure people allow themselves that freedom. I know my daughter is 26 years old. And it took her from the day she graduated, well, from the day she started college at 18 years old, she graduated at 20. It's a long story why she was in college for so little time, but from the year of age of 20 to 26, she was fighting the system because the system was telling her, you need, you, you you're a very educated young woman. You need to go out and get a very good job Mm -hmm. after having this great education. And you need to figure out what you want to be. But the problem is you may not know what you want to be, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Even at 26. And, she's and even just, in San Fran? In, in Berkeley, San Francisco, in, in yes. San Francisco. Oh. Yes. But now she's at a place where she's like, it's okay that I don't know what exactly what I want to do. And I don't feel bad about myself. She's contributing to society. society. She's working, but she doesn't have that pressure now of having figured it all out. And I'm so relieved for her as a mother. How would you define that freedom? What is freedom for you? What are the prerequisites for the freedom? What freedom looks like? Listen, I'm sitting here in San Francisco, California in America. And I have an incredible amount of freedoms that I know that a lot of people do not have. So putting those aside as assumed, you know, white woman in America freedoms, the freedom that I have now that I've worked hard for, I didn't realize I was working toward is that I get to be creative Mm -hmm. and do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. That to me is absolute freedom. Now, the caveat is I don't, I'm not flying around on private jets and I don't have designer clothing, right? I, so when I say that, I don't want people to think, well, gosh, she's so, you know, I get to sit here at my computer and design and develop my ideas and put them out in the world. And I'm not beholden to a weekly paycheck. I'm not worried now that I can't afford to pay my rent or my mortgage or feed myself. 
Um, so I think that is an incredible freedom that, you know, breaks my heart when I see that other people haven't had it. However, because I, in the, in the past didn't have it, I appreciate it so much. And the truth is I'll admit this. The vulnerability is there is a part of me that is pretty terrified that I will lose. Absolutely. In March of 2020, when the pandemic came and my business went to, I didn't remember that I had all these skills and abilities and connections. My mind immediately went to, you're going to be homeless. You're going to be sleeping in a doorway. What? Right. That is a flight or fight response. And that's a, you know, traumatic response. Then what did I do? I panicked a little bit, then I waited, and then I realized, oh, Natasha, right? You're even You're in you California. It's yeah, if, nice weather. If, I'm just kidding. Even <laughs> if I didn't save entire productions, my company, I could have gone out and done other things to make a living, but my brain didn't let me remember that immediately. So yes, today I am reminded all the time But I also know that I can survive if I lose everything. Freedom versus structure. Can it go together? How can I know how much freedom can I take? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I am pretty conservative within my freedoms, right? I make sure that I'm not spending more than I can afford. Mm -hmm. I really love and thrive in a pretty basic lifestyle. This t-shirt I'm wearing was probably $12 at Old Navy. That's very little money in America, right? Um, Actually anywhere. Yeah, I'm not interested in, um, now sometimes I do treat myself to things, but I don't feel I'm lacking if I don't every day have a T-bone steak. Okay. I don't want that every day, but just for an example, right? So I think that you, you, do you need to gauge yourself within the parameters of, of freedom so that you can continue to be there, but also you have to be willing to take some risks in business. Right. And, um, but at this point in my life, I have the freedom to take risks right? Because I know how much risk I can afford. And before, when I was younger, I couldn't afford the risks, but then there was nothing to lose. <laughs> I would love it. If you want to get a hold of me or see anything that I'm working on, you can go to officialnatashamiller.com. And that also is the place where you can learn about my book, which is called Relentless, Homeless Teen to Achieving the Entrepreneur Dream. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.